Welcome to the Plodcast Podcast, Episode 7. Good to have you here. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you listening. People oftentimes thank thank me for speaking, but I thank them for listening because listening is the hard part. So, uh, I want to talk today about what I call the battle for the dictionary. When we, when we find ourselves in collisions over things like, well, it's frequently about sexual issues, women in combat, or transgender issues, or homosexual, um, homosexual unions, uh, same-sex, I call them mirage, uh, same-sex mirages, they're not marriages. But what we're actually involved in, what's actually going on, is this is not a battle over marriage or battle over sex or battle over a sex change or battle. It's it's not fundamentally that. It is a battle uh, for the control of the dictionary. Who will be in charge of language? Who will be in charge of our ability to describe the world as we see it, and as Christians, describing the world, thinking God's thoughts after him, describing the world in the ways that we've been taught by Scripture and required by Scripture to describe the world. So what's happening is in this, um, in this great postmodern revolution that is uh, following you know, the, the ways of Humpty Dumpty, a word doesn't mean anything until I determine what it's going to, uh, what it's going to mean, um, this is, this is a collision, a tussle, a battle, a war over who is going to be in charge of all your nouns, who is going to be in charge of all your verbs, who is going to be in charge of what you get to call it. So if, um, and this is why we have ideas of like hate speech. This is where hate speech comes in. If you disagree with them, they, they want to, let's say you are, admonishing someone about sin in their life with tears in your eyes you are pleading with them to repent and turn to christ and by every biblical metric you are demonstrating your love for this person what what the people who are demanding control of the dictionary have said is that no what you've just done is hate speech it's hate speech, and they are they are saying we're going to call love hate. We're going to call what God calls love. We're going to call it hate. Well, in Isaiah five twenty, it says, uh, "Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute light for darkness and darkness for light, sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. Woe to those who invert everything. Woe to those who um, who say that they actually have the ability or the power or the strength." to assert control over the dictionary. Uh, and that's, what's, that, that's far more hazardous, far more difficult, far more challenging, far more of a, of a, of a rebellion than anything else. It, it'd be one thing if you said, well, I'll, I'll, let me, uh, if someone turned a bull into a steer, right? Basically, turning a bull into a steer is not, evidence of someone fighting for the dictionary. Uh, if you go back centuries, go by, back millennia, we've always had eunuchs. All right? So eunuchs are a thing. It is possible to change a man into a eunuch, just as it's possible to change a bull into a steer. But notice that when that happens, you're not, nobody's asserting dominion over the dictionary. No one, no one in, um, at any age prior to ours 
said, well, we, we get to pronounce that a cow is a bull, or we get to pronounce that a steer is a cow, or we get to pronounce the, these things. Well, no. And the fact that we're now doing this indicates that our rebellion is pretty far gone. It's, a, it's an advanced case of lunacy, like lunacy stage four. Because as Abraham Lincoln once asked, he said, how many, how many legs does a sheep have if we call the tail a leg? And the person he was talking to said five. And Lincoln said, no, it doesn't matter what we call the tail. It's not a leg. You know, it, it, um, a sheep has four legs regardless of whether we call the tail a leg. So we, th- that was reflective of, of an older era that said people who write dictionaries need to take some kind of sober empir- empirical account of the way the world actually is. A thing cannot be what it is and be something else at the same time. And so when we assert that it can be, when we assert that it can be anything I want it to be, and it, do you, what do you self-identify as? When people do that, when people are saying that, they are doing so because they are proceeding from a philosophical background that is pretty complex and hard to follow, and also, at the same time, messed up. Existentialism says uh, teaches that existence precedes essence. Existence precedes essence. That means there's the, the belief that the cosmos is there and it's stuff at the bottom. It's existent stuff and that we decide what it's going to be. So, we, so if, you, if you imagine that the world is nothing but colorless, tasteless Play-Doh, it's just the substance that can be molded into anything, then, of course, the existence of the Play-Doh is there, and then the essence of it doesn't arrive until you decide to shape it into something. So if you shape it into a woman, fine. If you shape it into a man, fine. If you shape it into something else you want to self-identify with, well, then fine. The Christian approaches this differently. The Christian receives the created natural order as something that has, from the get-go, from day one, that has fixed boundaries. These are fixed boundaries. God's, God established borders in this, um, in this world that he created. And you can see that happening from the very beginning. In the creation account, we see that God creates evening and morning. We see you know, that he, he creates sun and moon. He creates nighttime and daytime. He creates the sea and the land. He creates all, he's making these distinctions between these things. And and the pinnacle of it all, he creates man and woman. Everyone, uh, he creates sea and not sea. He creates night and not night. He creates the, the, the moon and not moon. He creates man and not man. He creates woman and not woman. Uh, so what this, what God is doing is he, uh, loves to take these things and put a fence between them. Put a, he puts a border between them. And he does this in the creation week. So when God does this, he is establishing these distinctions. And a lexicographer, someone who wants to write a dictionary, 
who comes along later needs to write down what is there and has to honor and respect what is there. He can't say that the world is this uh, nondescript Plato and that it doesn't much matter what piece you take out because you could take any piece out and form it in anything you want. That's not the way the world is. The world has dividing lines all the way through it. The, the world has distinct parts running all the way through it. Now, we can, we can exercise dominion over the world. We can learn how to prune and tame and encourage and, and decorate the fences, if, if you will. But we can't declare war on all the fences. We can't erase all the boundaries. We can't erase all the borders. And modern secular man, in his hubris, in his arrogance, has proclaimed himself king of the dictionary, lord of the dictionary, and he wants to persecute anyone who tries to stand up uh, up to him, tries to resist what he's doing. And that's why all of, all of our battles, every last one of them, is ultimately a battle over the dictionary. So, my book review for this podcast, podcast episode 7, uh, the book I wanted to treat today is Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. This book has a uh, particular warm spot in my heart, so some of this book review is going to be a little uh, autobiographical. Orthodoxy was, I believe, the first book of Chesterton's that I ever read, and what happened was this. I I had decided to, uh, I, I spent um, my hitch in the Navy and the submarine service, and and I was getting out of the service. I was getting out of the Navy. I had the GI Bill, and I was going to go to go to college on the GI Bill, and uh, and I had decided that I wanted to study philosophy. And the reason I, um, when people uh, people would ask me why or why are you studying philosophy? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with philosophy? I would tell them, well, I'm going to be. I'm going to get a job at Taco Time. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do with my philosophy degree. I will be the one in the back saying, what is a taco when it comes down to it? What, what actually is a taco? Well, I got derailed. I, was, I got out of the Navy and was um, taking courses in philosophy. And I, I had done this because I was planning on going into an evangelistic apologetics ministry in a college town, which is uh, what my dad had done. My dad ran an evangel. Uh, ran an evangelistic bookstore here in Moscow, Idaho, and another one over in Pullman, Washington. And my plan was I'll, I'll just get out of the Navy and I'll go to school where my folks are and uh, get my degree. And then I'll go on and I'll open up a, an evangelistic bookstore in another small uh, college town and do the same sort of evangelism that my, my father does. And I thought, well, philosophy would be a good major to take up because I can study all the basic worldview systems that non-believers have and I can study it uh, on their account and not getting it secondhand from Christians telling me what Buddhists think or Christians telling me what Muslims think or Christians telling me what secularists think. I can, I can just take these classes and learn from their books and their advocates, their instructors, and so on. So my idea was to study philosophy, to equip me to be an apologist or an evangelist in a college ministry in a college town. That was what the goal was. 
And of course, I ran into the fact that a lot of philosophy is, um, well, a lot of it is asking questions, pursuing questions that grown-ups ought not to be pursuing. Um, now, this is not to say that there is no value in philosophy. I'm not, I don't want to disparage philosophy from top to bottom. There are philosophers who are actually pursuing the great questions, the big questions, but there are also philosophers who are uh, wasting their time and everybody else's. I remember when I was doing, when I was doing my master's thesis in philosophy, I had to um, read a certain number of articles on the, uh, in the, in the philosophic journals on my, uh, thesis on my thesis topic, which was free will and determinism. And I remember going down to the library and these articles, many of them were so turgid. They were so bad that I had to, I would sit, I would sit in the library and read them aloud to myself. And I would read them aloud to myself in order to maintain forward motion, just to make, make sure that I, I had some headway. Well, that gives you some idea of the frame of mind I was in, exasperated uh, is a mild way of putting it, when I first ran across uh, Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. His book, Orthodoxy, was so full of sunny, robust, jolly, happy, good horse sense about the great questions. Here's someone talking about the big issues. Here's someone talking about basics of morality and the basics of the faith, the basics of the, he's talking about the big questions, and he wrote in understandable prose, he wrote in winsome prose, he wrote in laugh-out-loud funny prose, and he, he, saw, he saw the game. So basically, what happened was, I was uh, studying philosophy, I wasn't in danger of losing my faith or anything, but it was pretty dry, it was pretty dry and dusty going. So this dry and dusty going was a choking atmosphere. And Chesterton's orthodoxy came to me like an oasis in the desert. It was just a wonderful, wonderful book. So it came to me at the right time, the right place. I was greatly encouraged by it. Okay, here's a Christian with a brain. He's a Christian with a brain who uses it in his interaction with non-believers. And he does so in a delightful and in a winsome way. And uh, so I read it then, was greatly blessed. And of course, I've read it periodically since then. Always, always a wonderful time. Always a good thing. So we come to um, Hamartiology in podcast number seven. Uh, we are continuing our study of sin. We're not continuing our study of sin because we want to specialize in sin. We're continuing our study of sin because the New Testament warns us in many ways about it, and we want to stay away. So the word I want to consider um, uh, today is adikama. So uh, Gallio said that if Paul had been brought up on charges for some matter of wrong, Acts 18.14, then, then he, Gallio, would have been willing to hear the case. Uh, incidentally, little historical tidbit, in that incident in the book of Acts, in Acts 18, Gallio, uh, who, threw the, who threw Paul's case out of court, was Seneca's brother. So Seneca was the great Stoic philosopher who had been a tutor to the emperor Nero. 
Well, his brother, Gallio, was the one who pitched Paul's case out of court. And the reason he pitched, uh, pitched it out of court was he said, this is just about a, this is a bunch of words and names in your own law and a, and a bunch of esoteric stuff that I don't want to get into. He said, if it had been a matter of wrongdoing, some, if, if, if it had been a matter of wrong, then he would have heard the case. But as it was, he threw the, the whole thing out of his courtroom. Uh, showing, incidentally, that a shrewd pagan had a better grasp of justice than many modern Christians do. Uh, Later in the book of Acts, when Paul was standing uh, before the Sanhedrin, he invited his accusers to make their case about his alleged evil doing, quote-unquote evil doing, uh, Acts 24.20. If they had evidence then they were invited to bring it on. You know, if you have evidence, show me where, show me where I did this thing you said. You can't just, in, in the biblical world, you can't just assert that someone has done wrong. You need to have it independently confirmed. You have to have ev- evidence. This is what lies behind the biblical requirement of two and three witnesses. And in the book of Revelation, the same word, adikama, is used to describe the great iniquities of Babylon. And we're invited to see those iniquities as constituting a huge pile. Her sins have reached up to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That word is adikama. It's striking that the word is used three times in the New Testament. The first two of these three incidents, and this is worth pondering, the first two are instances in Acts concerning false false accusations of iniquities against Paul as made by his Jewish persecutors. So Paul was being persecuted and he was accused of being iniquitous, but he was accused falsely of this wrongdoing. The third instance shows that Babylon, which is the image in Revelation of the city of Jerusalem, is actually the place where such iniquities resided in abundance. The false accusers alleging iniquity were up to their necks in it themselves. So false accusations of iniquity are iniquitous. And of course, Babylon was an iniquitous city and thrived on it. That's what they'd given themselves over to. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.